So, can you hear me? I can't. No? I can't really hear myself. You can hear it now? Good? Okay, back row, Angie, Cole, great. Uh, so, a couple disclaimers real quick before I go. Uh, one, I'm going to try not to be too long. I know some preachers say that and then they go six hours. Uh, that's not going to be me. Uh, I know you're a little more used to the, the, the 40, 50 minute sermon. I'm going to try to land the plane around the 33 minute mark. But if, if you feel short change, you want some extra minutes, you can meet me in the connections corner and I can give you those extra minutes. Uh, another disclaimer would be a lot of things I say, they'll kind of be an other side to the coin of that. Uh, that, I, that I'm not going to get to simply because this just isn't that sermon. And it would take me six hours if everything I brought up I said, but that doesn't mean that this, but it also don't forget that this is true as well. Um, there's a specific message, so if it doesn't apply to you, it's not your boat, cool. Uh, but I just won't get to the other side of the coin of everything that's brought up. Uh, the last disclaimer is that there will be four take-home questions for you to write down. I thought about doing a printout for you to have with you, but study after study shows, you remember more if you take it down yourself. Uh, so if you've got phone, notepad, brought your tattoo artist with you, whatever you need to take notes, uh, there's going to be four questions. You won't miss them. I'll make sure you know what's coming up for you to write down. Um, so let's get to the, uh, the text here. It's coming from Matthew 8, chapters 1 through 4 should be on the screen as well as in the middle leaflet of your bulletin. So it says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Amen. Amen. Just real quick, we'll, we'll pray for some heat here. Uh, God, uh, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for all the students who have made it to the next phase of their education. I ask that you preach through me and that someone leaves here with a word from you, is encouraged, and grows closer to you. Amen. So this first verse kind of, what's happening? Okay. All right. So, uh, so sorry. Uh, the first verse kind of sets the tone for what's going on here. So Jesus came down from the mountain. Large crowds followed him. What's going on is that the Sermon on the Mount has just ended, and people are intrigued, excited about what Jesus is saying. He's saying things that they realize this isn't a regular God. So if anyone ever tells you Jesus never proclaimed to be God, ask them in return, why did they want to kill him? It's because when he said things, they said, we want to plot to kill this guy. When he would say something, the reason they picked up a stone to kill him is because they knew he was saying things that basically said, I'm God. They knew he was saying things that only God would have the authority to say. So what you see in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus is saying things that only God could and would say. And then in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start to see Jesus do things that only God could and would do. So we're moving from the words of God, and now we're going to start on the deeds of God. So it's a pretty simple story, uh, very, very short, only four verses. Leper comes up to Jesus, asks to be clean, and Jesus doesn't. You say, cool, 
Acts for God, and you get it. It's my kind of sermon, right? Uh, but this isn't, this isn't for the, the won't he do it crowd. What we want to really address is this is we want to really look at it from the perspective of the attitude of the leper. Uh, the attitude of the leper when he spoke to Jesus and how we can mimic that. So we're going to spend a lot of time in, in verse 2 um, uh, on the leper and, and what he said. So you can go. So a leper, you can go to the next one. Flat out. All right. So a leper. A leper was someone who was inflicted with the disease leprosy. It was a terrible disease in the land that they believed that Alexander the Great brought with him when he came from India. Um, what would happen is that there's some, there's some debate as to whether or not leprosy in the Bible is the same thing as modern-day leprosy, Hansen's disease. There's some thought as to whether leprosy in the Bible referred to a set of skin diseases uh, that included modern-day leprosy, and maybe even there's some thought it didn't include a type of mold or fungus because it appears as if maybe leprosy can be seen as potentially visibly infecting someone's clothes or the wall in your house which would be hard to do if it was just purely a, a bacteria or a virus. So obviously, I, you wouldn't see if someone sneezed on that chair and that, that person had the flu. Uh, but either way, no matter, leprosy was this terrible disease characterized by changing of the skin, loss of hair, boils, inflammation of the skin. If someone had a hereditary form of the disease, then their bones and marrow would start to fail them, as you see with this guy's fingers. And what would happen is this person with the disease would slowly crumble away, this slow, painful, agonizing death. And it was basically the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. That's how this disease was considered. And so you may look at that and say, okay, we get it. Take that off the screen. Next slide. But it's up there for a reason, because as hard to look at and as repulsive that may be to you, Similar, that's how the Israelites looked at it, to the point where they said, we don't even want to live around these people. They were forced to live outside the camp. Outside the camp was not just how you may think of staying on your porch, where this is my house, this is outside the house. Outside the camp, especially once the temple was built, was an awful place. It was where they would go to punish people. It was where they would go to stone criminals. It was where if you had a, a rough bowel syndrome, right, there's no modern-day plumbing, you'd go outside the camp to handle business, and you were just supposed to just cover it up afterwards. So here you have this nasty, rotting place where they would go and send people that they viewed as nasty and rotting. And of course, if you all have all these open sores and you're around dead bodies and feces and disease-carrying flies, everything just gets even worse and worse and worse, right? So we are talking about people who were living a terrible quality of life at the time. And even if you didn't have a bad form of the disease, if there is such a thing. You were forced by law to identify yourself. When someone came by, you had to say, unclean, unclean. You had to let them know that you were unclean, that you were a leper. Now, unclean did not mean, again, how we may think of flu. I sneeze on you, I'm contagious, you now have my leprosy as well. Unclean was a reference to their ritual and ceremonial way of life, and it was a big deal. If you were unclean, you cannot participate in those ceremonies and rituals. Uh, modern day translation, that meant you couldn't get special prayers answered, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't pay your offering. You may say, big deal, I'll do that once a month anyways. Well, for them, it was a big deal, because entirely what they depended on, they depended on 
contact with God. If 600,000 soldiers come over the hill from Assyria and the priest is unclean, there's no one to pray to God for protection, you're toast. Uh, so it, the necessity of being clean, even for the everyday person, was about the necessity we view as going to work. Had to do it to survive, to live. So take some examples from Israelite law and us going to work. It would be as if, I'm just using biblical examples here. If your boss stopped you at the front door and said, hey, you had sex with your wife this morning, can't come to work today, not getting paid. If he said, hey, you went to Starbucks and exchanged some money with the cashier, she had something going on, she was unclean, you can't come into work today, you're not getting paid. You went to Red Lobster on your lunch break, had something you shouldn't have ate, it's a half day for you, buddy, you're not getting paid, go home. And you may just naturally say, well, how would they know that stuff? Well... In many cases, you just drop dead when you showed up to work. And that's how people know, oh, this fool thought he can come to work unclean today. Or, again, modern-day translation of what would have happened in the Israelite times, you get to work and your company's sales and stock just start plummeting. And everyone's panicking, like, wait, someone, someone here is unclean. Who is it? Who is it? And when they finally figure out it's you, right, they don't, they're not firing you. They're not sending you home for the day. They're going to say, we're going to kill you and your family. So every other employee knows never to show up here to work unclean again. And it'll be a lesson to everyone. You don't show up to work unclean. And so when someone was dealing with leprosy and they walked by and they said, oh, I'm unclean, it wasn't just, oh, excuse me. It was probably, hey, back up, back up. Like, not trying to deal with that today. Don't want to do that. And when you're unclean, in many cases, even if you touch the dead body, you are unclean till the evening, till the end of the day. But if you are a leper, the process of being cleansed would last seven to eight days. So as a living leper, you were seen worse, more unclean than a dead person. So this is how bad this disease was viewed in the society, and to the point where it became the symbol of sin. But they wanted you to know that visually, this is a representation of how repulsive your sin is to God. They wanted you to know, regardless of how good you are, how well you think you've been, this is how ugly sin is to God. It is the worst thing that could possibly happen. So put it all together. You have this leper who runs up to Jesus. Well, uh, since he came up to Jesus, doesn't say he run. And he comes up to him, and he kneels before him. You can go to the next slide. This is an act of worship. Some of your translations may even say worship. But here this guy is who knows he's unworthy knows he has no business talking to Jesus. He's actually breaking the law by doing what he's doing, but he's saying, you are my only way. This is the only way it can happen. It, it's worth every bit of it. So first question, Q1, how desperate are you for Jesus? How desperate are you for Jesus? Do you see him as your only way? Or do you think, I can be a good person? Do you think, oh, there's some good elements in other religions? I can do those things. Do you think, oh, I'm usher, I'm pastor's son, whatever it may be. I'm not that really desperate. Or if you think maybe it needs to be rewarded another way, do you think you deserve your salvation? Does it, are you amazed by the fact of saying, I've been saved, I'm going to heaven? Does that shock you? Or do you see yourself as desperate? As the song said, do you see yourself as, I need your love. Oh, what was the rest of it? I need your power. I need your peace. I need it. I'm desperate for it. So this is the position this guy was in because he knew I have absolutely no other way 
other than if this guy right here does it for me? Would you run up to Jesus if he was here today in front of a crowd of people? I don't know if the crowd was still there because he says, don't tell anyone afterwards. I don't know if he pulled him to the side. But anyways, would you run up to Jesus in front of a crowd of people, kneel before him and beg, hey, you're my only way. Do this for me. Do you see yourself as desperate as a leper in Israelite society? So then he goes and calls him Lord. There's main, two main uses of the word Lord at the time. One is how uh, we kind of use in a divine way, Lord and Savior. Another way was just kind of to refer to someone as master. It simply meant, hey, I'm about to do whatever you tell me to do, which is the version he uses here. This, him calling Jesus Lord is not a religious statement. It's a submissive statement. He says, I know, I'm desperate, I need your help. I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do to get this leprosy cleansed. This type of lordship isn't new to us. We're very familiar with it and usually comes with two elements. There's some type of law that comes with it, and then there's some type of punishment we know that comes with it. We see it with our parents. Well, we know. Mom tells you to do something, it's the law. You got to do it. Well, some of us know that. If you've, <laughs> if you've tasted some leather, you know that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so along with that, you realize there's the punishment that comes with it. If I don't do what mom says, right? You go to work. Doesn't matter how inconvenient the start time is, 8, 7, 6, you know you got to be there on time. Doesn't matter what you, how you feel about boss's policies, you got to do that dress code. I hate those khaki shorts. You got to wear them. Doesn't really matter. You know there's a law and the punishment. I may get fired if I don't do it. Even if something as simple as a traffic light, you understand when that light is red, you have to sit there until it turns green. If not, law, I get a ticket. Punishment, even if I don't get a ticket, I might get T-boned, be in the hospital, might be dead. So you understand those things, and so like there's a sense of lordship. So even when it's super inconvenient, no matter how little people you see around, a lot of you will still sit there at that no turn on red sign. If it's 2 a.m., you know there's not a cop around. You're just sitting at this country intersection red light that won't change. You will sit there till it turns green. Because there's a sense of lordship to that. There's a law and a punishment. I'm going to do whatever it says. So, I mean, question two is coming in hot. Question two is coming hot. It is, do signalites have more lordship over my life than Jesus? Do signalites have more lordship over my life than Jesus? Do I interact with God in a way that says, regardless how inconvenient Regardless of what I want to do, regardless of what I see around me, that looks like it's okay to do this. Will I still obey him like I would a traffic light, like I would at work, like I would my parents? Do you have that sense of lordship the way this leper presents himself and just said, I'm not even acknowledging your God, but because I'm acknowledging you as Lord, Master, I'm going to do whatever you say do. And what we typically see is that as the fear of the punishment goes away, your sense of obeying the law goes away as well, even in those same relationships. Some of you realize there's no cop over here. The speed limit on 465 is 55 miles an hour. Ain't nobody in here doing 55 miles an hour on 465. <laughs> because you know I'm not going to get a ticket. So that punishment's gone away, so the sense of obeying this particular law, everyone's doing 70, 75. you got to do 90 on 465 to get a ticket. So I'm going to do 90. I'm going to do 85, even though I'm breaking the law. You know, at work, as 
dress code starts getting relaxed, and you see everybody else busting out the T-shirts and polos. You're like, okay, well, if it's all right, I'm going to start doing that too. Or if you're just in another environment, you realize, when you get to the point of realizing they won't fire me, the stuff you're willing to do as opposed to day one when you first showed up is different. And when it comes down to is really you're your own Lord. Even though the rules may be there, the, everything else may be there, as the punishment fades and as that leads to the law diminishing, we do the same thing with God because we realize I'm not going to get struck down by lightning. You think I'm not going to get struck down by lightning if I sin. You realize I can cuss this person out, slap them, whatever it may be, and life's going to go on. And so as the threat of the punishment diminishes, the, the need to keep the law in the sense of lordship diminishes as well. So we make ourselves our lord. So we need to get in the habit of mimicking this leprous sense of lordship. So he says, Lord, and then he says, if. If is a big deal. Big deal. Because he gave God the option of not healing him. If is really important. You want to lose some friends, pray some if prayers over someone going to the hospital. Because they'll look at you, right, in this kind of speaking into existence culture and say, don't wish that upon my baby. They'll look at you and say, you're not having faith. Why are you talking like that? But in something less stressful where it's not life or death situation, like picking between two jobs, you, you pray in their prayer and you're, oh, you're mature. You know what? I needed someone to remind me that God's in control and all these other things. <sighs> but look at this guy. Was, was he picking between jobs? Or was he in a life or death situation? And he still says, if. Put himself in a position that said, you don't even have to do it. You don't have to do it. We got to get in the habit of making if prayers. One reason why we don't do that. Simple one. We don't want to do it. Sounds bad. (laughs) Not not brain science there. Um, and so what we do instead, we make trades, conscious or unconscious. At 17, you make this trade with God, and it says, if I don't have sex before marriage, you will send me a good husband or wife. And then when you're 30, 35, 40, and it hasn't happened, you're like, you're mad at God. I held it my end of the deal. Why hadn't you held up yours? And you get even more upset when you look at someone else who's 25 and married and has been ratchet and wilding out and was with (laughs) all your best friends. (laughs) Because you put this expectation on God that he would do something. And And you've evolved it to the point where he has owed you something and he's wrong for not delivering on it. When the truth is, he's promised us salvation. He hasn't promised you marriage. Let you clap up for salvation. He hasn't promised you marriage. He hasn't promised you a certain level of income. He hasn't promised you a certain, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the word, uh, quality of life. He hasn't promised you a certain number of years on this planet. But he says, you will have salvation, though, if you come to me with the right attitude. And so we try to take that option away from him. And just said, I'm not going to pray in their prayer because I don't even want it to happen. I'm going to make this trade with you that you, God, need to uphold or else I'm going to be mad at you. Another thing we do um, is we begin to make these deals with God where we 
Uh, another way we take this option from them, we're, we're thinking between two things. You know you're going to move. And so instead of coming to God with, God, where should I move to, submitting to his will like he does, we do all the front work, and then we get it down to two options and say, all right, now that I've done the work, God, do you want me to go to Chicago or Cincinnati? I know it's one of those two. <laughs> and, it's, and we're seen as religious. I went to God in prayer, but you went to God with your will. And essentially, he wasn't your Lord. He was just your tiebreaker. So question number three, do I make deals with God? Do I make deals with God? Do I make trades with him? Is he my tiebreaker? Am I constantly just bringing him option A and option B and leaving C through Q out of the way for him not even to touch on? How can you spot this? How can you spot this? Uh, one good way to spot it is if you feel like God hasn't answered your prayer. He probably has answered it. It was no, but you didn't want that answer. <laughs> if you constantly feel like God's not answering my prayer, he said no. <laughs> but you refuse to accept that. <laughs> that he could have said no, because it wasn't an if prayer. You weren't treating him as Lord. You weren't seeking his will. Yeah. Another way you may see this play out is if you're, you're down to these two options and you've been praying about it a long time and you feel like, man, God's just not like, like making one more pure, more pleasant than the other. I can't decide between these two because it's, it's neither. That's why you can't. That's why he hasn't shown you which one's better because he don't want you to do either of them. <laughs> Again, you're saying Chicago or Cincy, and he's back here in Louisville. Just, I'm waiting. I'll wait for you to actually ask me what you should do, not tell me to decide between your two options. So when you put this sentence together, Lord, if you will, that's packed. It's powerful. Yeah, packed. It's powerful because it's total submission to the will of God. Total submission in a very vulnerable state. He has everything to lose right now. The closest we've come to saying something like this is when we said, as a kid, Mom, can I go over to Devin's house? Because you understand, Mom, Lord, I got to do whatever you say. Can I go? You understand? She could say no, and you got to deal with it. <laughs> you understand? She could say yes. You understand? She can say yes, but you got to wash dishes first, and you're going to be in here and do the dishes. You understood how, what it meant to submit to someone who could say yes or no, and there was nothing you could say about the answer. And we hated it, and we were like, like Joseph was saying in vacation Bible school, you can't wait till you're 18 so you can get out and don't have to deal with that anymore. So <laughs> right, so you think. <laughs> so you think. And so then he actually makes the claim at the end. After he submits, he asks, can you make me clean? And it's curious. He didn't ask, can you heal me? He said, can you make me clean? Because he's still focused on his ritual life. Still focused. He's, he's like, can you put me in a position where I can go talk to the person I'm actually standing in front of? This <laughs> is crazy when you really think about it. He's so stuck on his ritual life and what comes to that. He said, can you make me clean? Not, can you heal me? What are we on for? Question four. What's your biggest problem? What's that thing that you're constantly going to prayer to God about that you think is your biggest problem? Look at the last three weeks. 
when you go home or Tuesday morning, whenever you get around to reviewing the notes, what is it that I've constantly gone to God and addressed him with? You may realize you don't have a prayer life. You may realize I have one, but it seems like the only time I pray is when I'm asking for food to be blessed. But if you realize, oh, I've made my biggest problem in life my coworker, this financial situation, the fact that someone's treated me incorrectly, instead of realizing that our biggest problem is our hearts. Our biggest problem is, in fact, our hearts. Because that determines how you respond to those things that happen to you wrong. That determines how you respond to God when he says no to that if prayer. That's your biggest problem. Even though you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with what I'm praying for. And that's true. However, look at some biblical examples. John chapter 4, woman at the well. As important and as vital and necessary is as water to human life. She asked him for water, and he said to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't have been concerned with that water. So that's another element of looking at what's my biggest problem. How do you pray in a way that says, I understand who I'm talking to? Even for the Christian heart, the disciples come back, they've cast out demons, they've healed people, something Jesus sent them out to do. He told them to go do this, and they come back excited. Like, hey, Jesus, we're doing this, it's going great, it's going great. He said, that's cool, but... Be happier that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He, he like resets the orientation to say, hey, there's, there's something bigger always. It's always around salvation and what he's done for us. So the leper, he thinks his biggest problem is his leprosy. And so that's what he asks for when he comes before God. He gets one shot. There was a, um, was it Morehouse? Graduation? Is that the one? I think it was Morehouse graduation a couple weeks ago. And the commencement speaker, if you didn't hear about this, pledges to pay the tuition of the entire 2019 class he was speaking in front of. Everyone's real excited. Sure, one reason because they thought, this is my biggest problem. My student loans, it's 60 grand I'm about to owe somebody. But just imagine if someone, if that same guy, I think his name was Robert, if he said at the end of that, for the next six weeks, I'm going to travel around the United States. Anyone who comes up to me and asks me to remove their debt, I'll do it. Whether it's student debt, car loan, house payment, whatever it is, credit card bill, all you got to do is come up to me and ask. If some of y'all saw him in Taco Bell, even if he was with security, nothing would have stopped you from jumping over eight tables to get to him. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Because you realize this is in your head, this is a great problem. So why is it that when we come into church, where the, someone, even you don't have to be at church, you can be at home, right, living God, where someone who can answer all your problems, there's not that anxiousness to get to God, that excitement as if like, hey, this person is about to help me out with my biggest problem, my heart. Do the next slide there. So looking in verses three and four, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus instructed him, see that you don't tell anyone but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift prescribed by Moses as a testimony to them. 
So there's four things we kind of rapid fire here with that. Uh, one, just real quick, the priest, the gift, uh, what was the line? The gift prescribed by Moses. So when a leper was cleansed, there was a, if you go to Leviticus 14, complicated process they had to go through to prove to the priest that, hey, this leprosy has actually been cleansed. You know, lambs, doves, hyssop, a bunch of different other things they had to do in the house, outside the house. Uh, but, uh, and even if you are poor, there was a different set of rules for you, uh, what you could afford. You could uh, bring the Aldi's lamb if you needed to, if you can afford the, the big one. Uh, but... One thing he says, Jesus says to him, he's basically telling him, you're not done yet. Even though I've cleaned, cleansed you, you're not done yet. And in fact, your salvation should benefit the church. Because he tells, hey, go offer a gift to the priests, which they would keep some of. Go be a testimony to them. Go be of encouragement to them. Your salvation ought to benefit the church. So there's no real such thing as that Christian who says, I'm going to stay home and watch my TV preacher. I don't need to go to church. God says, your salvation ought to benefit the body of Christ, minimum. And then he has them keep the law. What he's telling them to do is keep in keeping step with the law. Not that that saved him, because remember, he's, the leper's already cleansed. So the law, keeping the law, was proof of something that had already happened. The dove, the lamb, the sacrifices did not cleanse him. He was already cleansed when he showed up. You come into church, baptism, being a musician, none of that stuff saves you. It's to be proof, an outward showing of something that has already happened. Jesus is trying to show us here that if he can clean leprosy, he can clean sin. Leprosy was the worst thing that could happen to someone at the time. So for any of you in this room, there's nothing you could do Jesus wouldn't take care of. Absolutely nothing. Because I can handle the worst of human diseases because I'm God. So I can handle the worst of human sins. And the last thing is a call to us for compassion. When a leper was cleansed, those scars didn't go away. Those fingers didn't grow back that they had lost. So it's a call for us as Christians to be compassionate to something someone may be bringing in from their previous life. We cannot effectively share the gospel if we are treating someone who has aborted that child or whatever it may be, as they are forever carrying around a weight that it's their fault until they hop in a time machine and go and change it. We cannot effectively share the gospel if we are teaching the person who's struggling with homosexuality. You're not really saved till you turn straight. We cannot effectively share the gospel if you're speaking to that Republican or white, you name it, coworker, as if you're not actually a mature Christian. You don't understand scripture until you agree with me on every single social justice issue. When the leprosy was healed, the scars remained. They, didn't, they weren't reversible. So, last question. Question five, Q5. How much do I really care? Quick survey. Show of hands. How many of you have ever heard a sermon, been in a Bible study, whatever it may be, on not worrying? You've heard a sermon, you did a Bible study, 
Keep the hand up. Keep the hand up. If you've heard something, the Bible teaches you not to worry. Okay. Put your hand down if you stopped worrying ever since then. Right? Put your hand down if you think, had I actually stopped worrying, my life would be better. Hand down if you think, if I stopped worrying, my life would be better. Okay, then. So, Q5, how much do you really care? These are, these are simple things, right? But they're profound truths about just as simple as not worrying. Simple, it's not, it's not going over your head, you shouldn't worry. Just as this is simple as God should be your Lord, prayer if prayer, seek his will, be compassionate to others. But if you don't take it serious as something I need to revisit and work at, if it's something you don't really care, by Tuesday morning I'll just forget it altogether, then just like you still worry, Jesus still may not be your Lord at the end of this. But the good news, good news. Stop that clock there, 31 minutes, we're good. Uh, the good news is Jesus' uh, blood sacrifices for all of us. He's, he's wanting us to know, hey, you don't have to go and do all these rituals. He wants us to know that I actually, if you read Hebrews 13, I went outside the camp for you and, and went through that awful experience and died on the cross. And all you have to do, all you have to do is believe that I did it for you. And he's asking us to, in return, show compassion um, and submit to him as Lord and in return. Amen.